Hey everyone, you are listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast. We are two neurodivergent mental health professionals in a neurotypical world. I'm Patrick Cassell. And I'm Dr. Neff. And during these episodes, we do talk about sensitive subjects, mental health, and there are some conversations that can certainly feel a bit overwhelming. So we do just want to use that disclosure and disclaimer before jumping in. And thanks for listening. So Patrick, there's a question I get a bit in interviews that I thought would be a good conversation thread for today. Yeah, let's let's talk about it. I know before we hit record, we were talking about misinformation and how things are communicated via social media and in the medical communities. So take yeah. us away. Yeah. So the question I get, and I, I don't know if you've gotten this question before, but, and I, I see it pretty much whenever an autistic or ADHD like clinician is interviewed by a mainstream outlet, I see this question often, which is like, how do we feel about so many people self-identifying as autistic or ADHD? And then what do we do with the misinformation that is out there on social media about autism and ADHD? Um, first of all, is that a question you've, you've ever gotten before? Yep. I get that question a lot, not only in like my personal world, but my group practice clinicians, the, the Facebook community that I moderate, it comes up pretty often. Thanks, okay. TikTok, yeah. for uh, all of your services here. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm curious, how do you, how do you typically respond to that question? I'm a big proponent and advocate for self-diagnosis because I understand just the the factors that go into trying to figure out how to schedule a neurodivergent affirmative assessment, the money piece, the accessibility, um, some of the discriminatory practices that are still in place. So I, I think that I'm, I'm totally pro self-diagnosis. I just get a bit concerned when someone listens to a 30 second TikTok video mm -hmm. and comes away with a lifelong diagnosis that is like, Hey, I listened to this video. It resonated. And now this is how I identify. And I think it's a tricky line because you certainly don't want to dismiss someone else's reality. But I also think you do need more information than like someone speaking for 30 seconds on TikTok or Instagram. Well, and that's also very non-autistic. It's very non Well, I mean, it might be more ADHD though, um, but it's very non-autistic to like listen to one reel and not do a deep dive that you spend months on. Yes, Absolutely. So that that's where I kind of have the struggle um, mentally to think about if you are just hearing a couple of social media clips and, you know, in a reel, in a, in a video, they're meant to be short, right? They're meant to be sn short yeah. snippets of information and you, and the takeaway is like, oh, I have this neurodevelopmental diagnosis condition right. and all of a sudden I'm identifying as autistic or ADHD. I, I just think it sets you up for a lot of potential misinformation. And I think it also sets you up for potential discrimination that may not even be valid or necessary because of the fact that this diagnosis may not be valid or, or accurate. Right. Like there, I could imagine a lot of people, for example, with social anxiety might resonate with some of the things people share through the autistic lens um, oh. or PTSD, complex PTSD, um, which that that's a really muddy one to tease apart to begin with. Um, didn't you make a TikTok about this and it went viral and then you never went back to TikTok? 
Yes. Guilty. Camera for following me down as I look down, um, showing that I'm completely mismatched in my uh, attire right now. Um, yeah, I made this video about um, about this. It went viral. I actually deleted the video off TikTok because I was getting so overwhelmed by how many views and responses and comments. Was it, it was getting like a ton of hate? I would imagine. Oh, no, it was actually oh. not. It was like actually very supportive, but I felt really? very overwhelmed in responding. And I, I've told you before, like I yeah. have a struggle and issue with not being responsive to things. So what I found it doing was consuming days of my time where I was like at a conference, speaking at a conference, but most of the time on my phone, responding to people on TikTok. This is why like every six months, I'm like, do I just get off social media? Although I'm a lot better. I wasn't at first, but I'm a lot better than you. I just, I just don't respond. And I actually just yesterday, I put up a automated email responder because I was realizing I was spending like two hours a day in my inbox. Yeah. Um, and I just, it is not the quality of life I want. Um, no, but yeah, you are a lot better than me. I will give you credit for that. Um, I, I'm, I'm less of a people pleaser than you. You're welcome. Yeah. I mean, I like to say I'm like a recovering people pleaser, but then I'm like, is that true? Because you're still people pleasing. <laughs> If you're like at a conference trying to get ready to speak and you're like getting pulled into responding to people's TikTok comments, I would say you are not yet in recovery. I'm so sorry, Patrick. I just want to name that this conference was over a year ago. So I feel like deleting TikTok off my phone and never going yeah. back on it is a first step. But that's, so. but that's the dynamic. That's the enmeshment cutoff dynamic. So in, in family systems or in like, sorry, I'm like analyzing you. You can tell me if this is overstepping um i'm not analyzing you i'm putting your situation in psycho ed concepts um so this there's this idea i just think it's so helpful for family dynamics that the more enmeshed a relationship is or the more enmeshed the family what often happens when one person starts to differentiate which typically looks like putting up boundaries um responding differently to the family system or the partner if the other person or the family can't adapt to that, what typically happens is cut off. So you've had like, you went from an enmeshment with TikTok to cut off, which is that's that typical, the more enmeshed you are, the the sharper the cutoff will be. Um, so I would actually not say that was recovery, Patrick. I would say that was a cutoff, which is indicate, indicative of the level of enmeshment. <laughs> You know, what's unfortunate is you're right. And also I was only on fucking TikTok for like a month at that time. I, and that, the reason I didn't want to go on it was because of my fear of like having to be responsive. So lesson learned. But one thing you said that really resonates with me and the topic that we want to talk about is the social anxiety piece, because that mm -hmm. is definitely where the majority of my comments were coming from of like, I, I made a video about bottom-up thinking versus top-down thinking oh, and cool. that was the one that went viral and what happened was most people who experienced social anxiety were saying like but that's my experience in a lot of ways too but huh. my my struggle area was to then make more videos to describe like the differentiation between social anxiety and maybe being autistic maybe you know being adhd or vice versa because I was just like frozen in paralysis mode in, in response. But nevertheless, like I would say almost 80% of the responses and comments were from people who had 
debilitating social anxiety who are like, when I walk into a room, this is how I feel. Like, this is what I experience. And then having to also describe like, okay, but that's in social situations, right? And that's that's where we're really highlighting the differentiation in, in diagnosis. And I think that, you know, what you're saying is those are the things that often get misconstrued. That's where a lot of overlap and, and misidentification comes in is when we're talking about things that look so eerily similar in mm -hmm. specific facets or areas of life. Yeah. Yeah. And this is where like, so my bias, right. And why I started making the Venn diagrams I make, um, is because my assumption coming from the medical system is typically these get misdiagnosed the other way in the sense that autism gets missed, ADHD gets missed, and the, and the anxiety gets diagnosed. So uh, it's interesting to have like come into this world as trying to make a corrective. And then whenever I dip out of this world and I go like, when I get interviewed by a mainstream outlet, the question is like, what do we do with all this misinformation of people worrying the opposite, that people are over-identifying? Um, and that's where I think we have to have these conversations in relation to each other, like in a dialect of to talk about this, the misinformation on social media, which I, I think there's less of than people often, I think the medical community often projects a lot of misinformation on social media. Of course there's misinformation, there's misinformation everywhere. Um, but we have to have that conversation in conversation with the facts the medical community has misinformation in the sense that training programs have not caught up to the most current research on non-stereotypical presentations of autism and ADHD. And so it's really interesting. I feel like there's this like teeter-totter effect happening that creates almost a polarization between medical community and social media. Like, I don't know about you, but I'm in Facebook groups with like testing clinicians and clinicians and they're, and the derogatory things I hear about like, oh, all these TikTok autistic, you know, TikTok referrals or cool to be autistic these days mm -hmm. is what I hear a lot of. It's, you know, cool to be ADHD and that it just feels like a a movement in terms of what people used to say in almost a stigmatizing way of when people used to self-diagnose as bipolar very often. Mm -hmm. And people would say, Oh, it's it's really cool to be bipolar or like to claim that status. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what there's a lot of, there's still a lot of discrimination and ableism, even within the mental health and medical communities saying things like that or yeah, yeah. using outdated terminology like, um, Asperger's high functioning autism, low functioning mm -hmm. autism, ASD, mm -hmm. et cetera. And it's, it's interesting the way that these conversations are being framed in, in these environments too. Yeah. And I guess that's, I mean, right. This is kind of what we do is nuance. I, I guess I want to have a conversation that holds the both end of like, yeah, there, there probably is an oversimplification of autism and ADHD happening on social media. Right. And there are like, there's really valuable education on there specifically for people with intersecting identities that are often misrepresented or underrepresented in the research. And so to hold a complex, complexity of like neither one of these extreme narratives like the extreme narrative on the other side being like the medical community totally doesn't get it like only social media i mean that's not really the narrative i don't know what the extreme narrative is but 
No, that feels like an extreme narrative, right? Like the medical community doesn't get it or our social media community always gets it wrong. Like, I think that's, that's the polar opposite and both are simply pretty inaccurate, I assume. Yeah. It's, it's somewhere like both are true and both are wrong. Like somewhere in the middle. Therapist, mental health, like professional thing to say. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The both ands are true. Right. And this is a very nuanced conversation. You're bringing up so many really important points that get overlooked so often. So if we're talking about social media content made by other neurodivergent people, especially with intersecting uh, identities, mm-hmm. uh, people who have been marginalized, not only is this information accessible on social media, it's mm-hmm. fucking free. Like it's free. So why would I not listen to people who are showing up and talking about their own experiences in that way? Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's where, like, I love the emphasis on lived experience of like, like lived experience. Well, well, Sony Jane, I really love their content. I I think their hashtag is literally lived experience education. Like I, I love, and I see that um, term being used more now of kind of blending lived experience with clinical expertise um, and there has, that's a really important corrective is to, to highlight the lived experience. So much of ADHD and autism has been defined by what people on the outside observe, right? So like think about the DSM, it's these behavior checkboxes of things that can be observed by an outsider. And all of a sudden what social media has done is it's opened up people to talk about these things from the inside, which is really, really powerful. Yeah. And I think that these conversations need to be had from both sides. And I I just, so we always think about like, how do we bring things closer together though? Like what's the yeah. answer here? Because it still seems like there is a big disconnect in between like medical mental health community, mm-hmm. actual lived experience. And then mm-hmm. the validity when it's talked about within those communities of like, are we going to take lived experience at its face value? Are we going to say this is valid? And of course it is, right? But I do think that there are a lot of professionals who would still say like, oh no, we need to do X amount of research. We need to do these tests. But these things can be so excluding or discriminatory. And you're not seeing a lot of our research be founded on people of color or people in the trans communities or people of the queer community in general. So I guess my take on it is that where is the middle ground in this? Yeah. I mean, I think, gosh, this makes it sound like I'm like, I don't don't know. I don't want to, I think whenever you start talking, okay, I'll just say the thing and then I'll say, I don't want to monopolize information and I'm afraid this is what's going to sound like it, but like I'm seeing more and more autistic researchers or more and more autistic clinicians um, the reason, because I fall into that category, I'm like, oh, that makes it sound like I'm the only one valid to talk about it. That's not at all what I'm saying or thinking. But I do think we are the bridge of right. like people who live at the intersection of both kind of traditional research institutes, institutions or traditional clinical spaces and then lived experience. Um, and I'm I'm seeing more autistic researchers kind of come out and collaborate and it's really exciting and probably also ADHD. Again, I'm not seeing the same like level of community around it as I see around autistic researchers. Um, but I think that is one of the ways that we bring these worlds together. 
Yeah, I think that's a great point. Why do you think it is that we're not seeing as many ADHD researchers in your experience or in your perspective? Um, it's interesting. I this is gonna like rabbit trail us, but I think maybe it's an interesting conversation. I notice, like, I I know several psychologists who are ADHDers or even researchers, but it's not as focal point of their identity. Um, it's even interesting. I was thinking about this with my own experience. When my daughter was diagnosed with ADHD, I didn't jump off into like a huge research dive. I didn't get curious if it meant I was ADHD. I was just like, okay, that explains things. Moving on. And maybe it's because I was so exhausted with everything I was managing when she was seven, my son was three. I was in the middle of a study program. But when we discovered she was autistic, like I dove head first into that. Um, so, so that's been interesting to reflect on even my own experience. And I feel like autism has become a much more focal part of my identity than ADHD. And I see that among the professionals I know who are ADHD, like they'll make, they'll share it sometimes, but it's not like they're joining like ADHD research, Facebook groups. They're not, um, it, it doesn't feel like it's as central to their identity in the same way that I see happening in autistic spaces. Of course, there's going to be variants there. Um, I don't know. Does that, do you resonate with that? Do you observe something similar? Yeah, absolutely. I think you and I have talked about this before with our own identifications within this podcast that we tend to talk about autistic experience significantly more mm -hmm. than ADHD experience. And I, I don't, I think that what I said when we, whenever this conversation came up last time was that it feels like there's still a significantly more stigma around autistic experience mm -hmm. and diagnoses. And I wonder if that's why we don't see as many people who are consistently identifying as ADHD in, in all areas of life comparatively to most autistic people, where I see that becoming more of a place where people are really centering around their identity as if like, I want to own this and yeah. I want to claim this. Yeah. The other thing, so I, it's been interesting. I've heard Sony talk about this and I really like their perspective or they actually say like ADHD advocacy is behind autistic advocacy in the sense of like ADHD pride or um, stigma, which that was interesting to me because I, I probably would have had the inverse assumption. Right. Um, but the part when they were talking about like ADHD pride, I was like, yeah, like there is a, a there's so much stigma and, and maybe it is kind of that pendulum, like because there's so much stigma, a lot of autistic people, we've really leaned into autistic pride to counteract right. that. Sure. Um, but there isn't, there, it's developing, but I, I would say the same level of like pride in ADHD culture is not where autistic culture is. Again, it it's going to depend on what spaces you're in. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I, I imagine you're right. Like it would depend on which spaces you're in and showing up in and, and following and, and participating. And I know that if I'm thinking out loud, like about most of the Facebook groups that I'm in, that I'm not participating in them, I'm just in them, um, mostly are autistic spaces. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. yeah. And this is maybe my own bias coming up or my own, you know, 
is that like I've always assumed I was ADHD. I think that was always just a part of my reality where young cis het white boy who has struggles sitting still that was always instilled in my mind at a very early age, even though a lot of that was through an ableist lens. Um, I think the autism diagnosis for me was much more life-changing than my ADHD diagnosis when I got, when I received that, because I was just kind of like, yeah, I, I think I knew this, like, this was not shocking to me. Um, the autism diagnosis, like I've talked about was really life altering in a lot of ways and has really informed how I view the world in a lot of ways too. Yeah. You have talked about that and I've heard it when you like, there's a, like a shattering moment, like the before and the after I hear in your story when you talk about, and not necessarily in a bad way, just in a, like the, the world and the lens, I see the world and myself is forever different that it sounds like with the ADHD diagnosis that that moment didn't happen. No, I don't even think I really gave it a second thought in the moment. I was just kind of like, okay, um, this makes sense. I am, there are a lot of executive functioning challenges. I definitely struggle with certain aspects. Um, but no, I, I, I think it's the social component for me, like the realization that the autistic piece was really the driving force behind a lot of self-discovery and diagnosis was the, like I've talked about, the feelings of loneliness and disconnection and alienation and just never feeling like I belonged. I wanted answers for that. And I think that, that sounds like a lot of um, people who I've talked to about their own autistic diagnosis journeys of wanting answers, really wanting a deep dive and really wanting to get clarity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the like the mystery solves. And I actually do feel like I think that does that is a shared experience. The mystery solved. Like I've I've talked about this on here before, how I felt like there was like a hundred mysteries that I want to get answers to that were solved when I discovered I was autistic. Yeah. Um, but actually I feel the same way about ADHD. Like when my when my spouse and I moved in together, so we, you know, I said we were raised really fundamentalist. So we didn't live together. Till we were married um which honestly get his thoughts when he listens to this i don't know if he would have married me if we did this <laughs> together before because <laughs> i'm messy i'm so messy and he was so confused by it like why didn't you close the cabinets why don't you like because i would just you know i open cabinets i leave them open what what i now i've trained myself to close cabinets mostly um but it like really shocked him I think how um, messy and disorganized I was. Um, and there's so much there around my struggles to just, you know, adults, as they say, the ADHD really did help answer. Uh, yeah. And I wonder if I just am that so much of me is, is if we're weighing out like parts, like much more autistic than ADHD, because I don't have some of those struggles. Yeah, when you show me like your inbox or your computer screen, I'm like, where's the ADHD? What does that look like mine? It's it's really in the spontaneity and the creativity and the like bursts of stimulation that I seek. Like, I don't know, I, I don't have the struggles where I'm like, everything in my office is so regimented and orderly and everything in our house is so regimented and orderly. But then if I try to cook a meal, 
I can't put those two pieces together and I really struggle mm -hmm. at, you like know, out. Seeing of the steps is that, yeah, yeah. that's really yes. challenging. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting as I observe that more and more because, you know, you and I have talked about like ADHD part got really creative and agreed to all these, you know, projects. And now autism is like, why did you do this to me? You mm -hmm. know, like, that's how I feel all the time. Yeah. 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 I, uh, so I, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure, uh, parse that out for myself, honestly. Yeah. 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 I was about to ask, like, based on your, your office, your computer, which I've, I've seen at times, I was about to ask, like, do you have executive functioning struggles? But it sounds like you do with the sequencing piece. Sequencing is very challenging. Um, I will I will definitely have situations where I have to also diverge into multiple spaces to communicate with people. And I think that can irritate and rub people the wrong way at times when I'm like, here's a message here, here's a message here, here's a simultaneous conversation going on all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, that has always been a, a big struggle for me. Um, I, I don't know. I, I do have executive functioning challenges, but I don't think that they're as significant as a lot of people uh, who I come in contact with or spend time with or coach or, or communicate with. My issues are typically social struggles, mainly like the social pieces is, is real. Uh, that's, that's the, the big kicker for sure. With more, so more autism. Yeah. Yeah. I'm switching my camera because it was like bobbing. Um, which if I was a listener and I was watching that, that would drive me crazy. So just that's why I'm FYI for everyone watching right now. Yeah. <laughs> I think my noise canceling headphone battery just died. Cause now I, I hear this like ringing outside. Um, I hope you cannot hear it, uh, but yeah. Inside so the world of tech issues. All happening at once crumbling down yeah. before your eyes. Uh, as we're talking about like misinformation around social media and technology. Yeah, we we diverge pretty far there. Um, so let oh, me ask yeah. you this. Like, um, okay, so yeah, the, the mainstream question is often like, are you concerned about this? Would you say you are concerned about misinformation on social media with autism and ADHD? I feel like Megan just caught me in like this trap right now because I'm like, it's a terrible question. It's a terrible question. And it's and you don't have to answer it. The reason I'm asking it is because like it's what mainstream media likes to ask people like you and me. And and my my elevator response is um well, we've got to have that conversation in, in relation to the misinformation in the medical community. And that's sure. kind of how I sidestep the question. <laughs> right. Um, if you had to give a yes or no answer to that. I, I mean, I would say, I think I have, let's see, how have I said this before? I think I've said the benefits of like lived experience awareness being out there, um, the benefits of self-identification and self-diagnosis by far outweigh any so-called risks. And I guess the risk being someone might misidentify, like I know there is this idea out there of like, are we diluting the diagnosis? Um, and I think, again, you've just got to have that conversation in relation to how many under, like, un like the underdiagnosed groups, like totally. how, 
I mean, how appropriate, right? That the moment, you know, people of color, women, gender, poor people start getting diagnosed, we're like, oh, these diagnoses are being diluted. Um, so I guess I don't really answer it. Well, I mean, I, I guess I do answer it. I say the benefits outweigh. And I mean, it, it is interesting. What are the risks? I guess the risk being if, if someone identifies with an inaccurate diagnosis, and, and let's say it is social anxiety, you know, there's really, really good treatment for social anxiety. So if it deters right. them from seeking treatment for social anxiety or for complex PTSD and like healing their nervous system, um, then yeah, that that would be unfortunate if it's like they've identified, misidentified as autistic and then decided this is part of my baseline experience because I'm autistic, but it's actually social anxiety and therefore they never get treated for social anxiety. Like, yeah, that would be really unfortunate for that person. There might also be benefits. They might connect with a community that they feel like deeply connected with. They might forge some meaningful connections along the way. Um, but yeah, I would say that's actually a risk now that I'm thinking out loud. <laughs> so this is why I think this conversation is so nuanced though, because it's like, the answer is like, do you think that social media and diagnosis and misinformation is, is, is a bad thing? The answer is like, yes, and, or no, and right. Like depending, but I do think like you mentioned benefits outweigh the risks, then that's, that's my perspective as well. Um, and I think you're absolutely correct, but there is room then for someone to, to unfortunately struggle more in certain areas that they don't necessarily have to right. they have the, the accurate information. Right. Right. Exactly. Is that they might be um, embracing something about themselves that is actually very treatable. Right. And who knows how long that can go on. That could be a lifelong experience, right? Like ultimately. Mm -hmm. And, but I also think about the flip side about how many times I've been misdiagnosed in my life with things that definitely were not an autism diagnosis. And yeah. yeah. then there's the flip side of trying to treat these quote unquote treatable uh, conditions like social anxiety, <laughs> complex yeah. PTSD, yeah. managing bipolar disorder symptoms to no avail um, because we're looking at it from the wrong lens because the medical or mental health community got it wrong exactly. because of the evaluations or tests or assessments or very, very brief 45-minute clinical interview where I answered questions a certain way. I see bipolar get diagnosed so quickly by particularly psychiatrists, not to throw psychiatrists under the bus, but like like I'll maybe be working with someone for like years and then they go to have one appointment with a psychiatrist and psychiatrist is like bipolar after 45 minute interview. Um, yep. Just like that. Then you're on mood stabilizing medication and. And and that's a hard one because once it's on your record, like providers are pretty cautious to put you on like an SSRI and right. classification of antidepressants. So yep. it's, it's, really hard to ever get it off your record because people, and I actually, again, I think, oh gosh, nuance, right? Like exactly. I think if someone has been diagnosed with bipolar and it's warranted, like it was actually a good clinical interview, do you think it's good to keep it on the medical record? Cause you do want to know about the risks of triggering mania. 
Um, Absolutely. But if that was a diagnosis put on after a 40 minute interview that didn't consider ADHD and autism, like, yeah, that's really unfortunate. And I think that happens so often. And we talked about some long-term impact of certain and specific diagnosis when we were talking about like life insurance and, you know, potentially employment when they're running background checks too. Like diagnosis carries a risk and it is also a nuanced conversation when we're talking about diagnoses. So like, I think that's why this conversation is so complicated and sure. because if we're talking about the mishaps with, with the medical system and the mental health system, which we kind of touched upon last week, I mean, or yeah, last week, um, we're talking about very brief clinical interviews for the most part, where mm -hmm. these people don't have enough time to really assess or are not appropriately trained to assess. Mm -hmm. And you leave with a diagnosis after being asked, like, what's your family history? What's yeah. your own history? What's mm -hmm. your... Uh, involvement with substance use? What's your risk-taking behavior? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, now, now I'm leaving with yeah. this diagnosis that is probably not accurate. And that that's really frustrating for me. That. Well, that's, I'm, and that's, so yeah, it's tricky, right? Like a clinical interview is a really fine tool, right? In the sense that these have been finely tuned over years. So like for the, the bipolar clinical interview is not that complicated in the sense that if you meet this criteria, okay, but here, here's where it does get tricky and where I wish clinicians were trained in. So the MDQ is the screener that essentially assesses for um, presence of mania. And it'll ask, so things like kind of um, more risk-taking behavior, inflated sense of ego, um, kind of flight of ideas. And then it'll ask, you know, if, I think it's five, five or more of these present in a given window's time. Um, what... What we know is that that screener is also sensitive for ADHD combined type and ADHD hyperactive type. So if a clinician knows that, then you'd want to get a sense of like, okay, so these experiences you're describing, like, let's really like, is how much is this part of your baseline? And then you'd, I think you'd want to do, well, you absolutely would want to do screeners for ADHD too. Um, how did I get on this? What was, where was I going? Um, oh, Clinical interviews, I think, are good tools, but when you're not thinking about what else explains this, um, that's when they go awry. So especially with bipolar, if you're not thinking what else, specifically ADHD or autism, might explain this. And most clinicians aren't because the way we've been trained to think is that those ADHD and autism would have been caught in childhood. So why would it be on my radar if I'm assessing a 32-year-old? Absolutely. And also like I, you and I both know what it's like behind the scenes in certain clinical environments where you just are like seeing client, seeing client, seeing client. Mm -hmm. And that does not always lend itself to be thinking and conceptualizing from that perspective. And it's much more about just like, let's get this done. Like I need to see the next person. Yeah. Um, I have productivity requirements. Like, And, and, and you're thinking about risk, risk reduction. Yeah, and if absolutely. you are questioning this person might be bipolar from a risk reduction standpoint it is i'm not saying this is right i'm talking about right like it is in a clinical mind i could see why it's less risky to diagnose it and be cautious because again you want to be thinking about medications that might be triggering mania that's not a diagnosis you want to miss right. um 
And so I could see why if someone's in the gray area of if that is respectful or not, um, and again, they've got 45 minutes and then moving on to the next person and they're deciding, do I put you on an SSRI or a mood stabilizer? Like why they would make that decision is Absolutely. it's like from a, what medication we put you on, it could, it can be seen as a risk, um, the less risky choice. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And, you know, I think because, and your, you know, Megan's Venn diagrams that she puts out for, um, what is it? Misdiagnosis Monday, mm-hmm. which yeah. are so, so helpful to acknowledge that those overlaps, right? Whether we're talking about mood disorders, complex PTSD, or we're talking about social anxiety, the overlaps, that's also what is being talked about in very brief 30 second clips on social media and yeah. Yeah. how you could simply just be talking about that overlap without an understanding of the differentiating factors and how easy it can be to then all of a sudden say, yeah. okay, that's, that, that is my reality. So like one misinformation piece I see on social media a lot, there's like, I see this kind of move to monopolizing experiences or traits or symptoms. So for example, on, you'll notice in a lot of my Venn diagrams, sensory issues is often in the middle because, you know, sensory processing disorder is not technically a DSM diagnosis anymore, but um, like there's a lot of people that can have that outside of autistic people. ADHDers are more likely to have sensory processing sensitivities or sensory processing disorder. When we're anxious, um, our sensory system is running on kind of a heightened level. So we're going to have more sensory issues. OCD tracks with sensory differences. Um, There's like two sensory systems that tend to be more impacted by OCD than others. PTSD, again, the nervous system is on fight flight alert. So everything's happening through a hyper arousal unless they're dissociated. Um, but I see this a lot of like, oh, if you have sensory sensitivities, you're autistic. Um, that is a piece, that kind of misinformation I do see on social media. I'm like, no, like we, we don't monopolize sensory sensitivities. Um, so actually now that I'm thinking about it, you're right. There is some like misinformation on social media that kind of gets me upset. <laughs> That is a wonderful example of how complex and nuanced this conversation is because it's like, oh, those little aha moments where you're like, oh yeah, that is problematic, right? Like that can be a major issue. So I think we could have a whole damn series on misinformation and it's, it's just a conversation we want all of you to start thinking about in a very nuanced way where it's not black and white and that things do get missed and that there is misinformation out there. And I do think you have to really do deep dives when you're, when you're thinking about some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. That felt like concluding remarks, Patrick. That's what we're going to start calling concluding remarks. Instead <laughs> concluding of remarks with Patrick. I don't think Megan Anna, that's weird. I just talked about myself in third person. Um, <laughs> I don't think I ever do the concluding remarks. It's probably because I don't have very good summarizing skills. <laughs> I I also have like time urgencies. Um, I think that's why I'm like, okay, yeah, time to conclude. But I, I do think it is time to conclude or could do awkward goodbyes. Um, but I do I, I think that there's so there's so much ambiguity, ambiguous space. I can't use that word. Am, ambiguous. It's ambiguous. Like this conversation is not black and white. It's not binary, and there is a lot of. Um, middle ground. And I really encourage all of you, if you're not to check out Megan's work about misdiagnosis, Megan lays this stuff out 
I don't want to say better than anyone. I might be biased. Say that. That's way too much pressure. <laughs> no pressure here. It's really helpful. It's really, really helpful. So check out Megan's website, neurodivergentinsights.com. Check out Megan's Instagram, neurodivergent underscore insights. Like it's so helpful. And I cannot say that enough. Like my clinicians use your stuff all the time. They they share it constantly. And it it's it's helpful in addition to whatever you're hearing in in your medical appointment or mental health appointment or whatever you're hearing on your TikTok series or Instagram. Like really combine those things. That's what I think is important is to combine lots of different aspects. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, make a... Oh, I, I'm not even going to try and say that word. Smart. Well, maybe I would smorgasbord. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you said it right. I, I think. It right? Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah like a potpourri bag. Of, like, yeah, I love that idea of combine. Like, just yeah. making sure that we're getting our information from multiple sources. Yeah, um, is a really good way to kind of, yeah, I think have a more robust frame on any of these things. I like that. I can't wait for the transcription to come out on that. <laughs> Yeah, make a smorgasbord, a potpourri, a charcuterie board, like just piece this together instead of just taking information from one source. And I think that's really important in any sense in society, but really important when we're talking about life-altering diagnoses and understanding, um, I, I think that's a really important part of this. And I hope that's the big takeaway today. And I yeah. also want to acknowledge that we weren't all like doom and gloom the entire time and we offered a lot of insight. <laughs> Ooh, sorry. I'm backtracking. Data points. I talk about data points a lot with people. So like there's a ton of free screeners online, both for ADHD and autism. Those are data points. Talking to people in your life. Those are data points. Listening to reels and TikTok. Those are data points. Meeting with your doctor. Data point. Um, And some of those data points are weighed more heavily than others, but I like the lens of like gathering data points. I love that. And that is a perfect ending. So Thank you so much for listening to Neuro. I almost said Neurodivergent Insights. Thank <laughs> you so much for listening of, to like, Neurodivergent Insights. Uh, thank you for listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast. New episodes are out every single Friday on all major platforms and YouTube. Like, download, subscribe, and share. We'll see you next week. And now, pause for a word from our sponsors. From new patients faced with an empty lobby and no idea where to find their therapist, to clinicians with a session running overtime and the doorbell ringing, some of the most anxiety-ridden moments of a therapy appointment happen before a session even starts. This episode's sponsor, The Receptionist for iPad, helps you tackle some of that pre-appointment apprehension and anxiety. The Receptionist for iPad is an easy-to-use digital client check-in system that helps your visitors check in securely to their appointments and notify their practitioners of their arrival via SMS, email, or your preferred channel. No more confusion, endless lobby checking, or having clients sign in on paper logbooks. It can even help you upgrade and update your demographic information for your clients as well and even validate parking. Start a 14-day free trial of The Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com slash private practice. Make sure to start your trial with that link and you'll also get your first month free if you decide to sign up.